Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Russ Kennel shares four highly rated funds that have reopened for investors. Alex Bryan addresses the risks and rewards of value investing. Madeline Hume evaluates how the recent market crisis affects college savings. Christine Benz suggests strategies for retirees who rely on dividend stocks. And our data reveals that stocks are less attractive today than they were in March. Let's get started. Here's Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. and Russ Kennel of Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. Investors continue to flee actively manage mutual funds, but Morningstar's Director of Manager Research, Russ Kennel, believes that some recently reopened funds may actually be worth a look. Russ, thank you so much for being here. Glad to join you. Russ, um, let's talk about why funds reopen to new investors. It seems that um, when assets get below a certain size, that prompts them to reopen. But what's sort of the general reason that drives these reopenings? That's right. Uh, funds close because of inflows and asset bloat. And, and so it's kind of the reverse that leads them to reopen. If they're getting uh, outflows that co- are large enough to be a problem, they might reopen. Or more often, it's just uh, assets have, have shrunk to the level where they feel like they could take in more money and uh, still manage the portfolio effectively. So have you taken a look at this issue of whether a lot of reopenings could be sort of a contrarian indicator, either for a given fund category or for the market as a whole? Uh, yes, I have, though I would say the data is not complete enough to really uh uh, say with that it's certainly uh, a good time to invest. Uh, anecdotally, it appears that that's the case because uh, funds tend to reopen when the fund strategy and and uh, their their asset class are under pressure. So in a way, it's the reverse of when funds close. You're ki- they're kind of saying uh, we're, we're we're out of style. We're out of we're not very popular right now. Uh, so often. Um, it is a good time to invest, though certainly I wouldn't imply that this moment is is necessarily a, a good time. In other words, a fund might reopen uh, halfway into a bear market. Uh, and again, we don't know. We could have another leg down. So it's not a perfect uh, timing vehicle, but generally it's a pretty good sign. Are you seeing the reopenings concentrate in any particular style of funds? Uh, definitely. Uh, small cap and value. Uh, small value in particular because small value has been underperforming for 10 years or more. Uh, it, it was underperforming for a long time prior to this year. And then this year, it really bore the brunt of the sell-off. So things, its underperformance relative to the rest of the style box actually got worse. And of course, small value is sensitive to asset size anyway. So it's an area where you often have funds closing. So we've seen a lot of good small value funds reopen. Let's talk about taxable investors, Russ. Is there a risk if someone's looking at one of these newly reopened funds that if it continues to see outflows and they're in a taxable account, that they could get socked with a capital gains distribution either later this year or perhaps even sometime mid-year this year? Is that a risk factor? Uh, it's only a modest one after a bear market because uh, a lot of those capital gains are no longer there. A lot of what they might sell could well be sold at a loss. So it's it's a diminished uh, risk, but it's it's a real one. And I think one of the things to look at would be 
the rate of outflows. The four funds we're going to talk about today do not have very dramatic outflows, but if they're really big outflows, uh, then you're right. That's a bigger concern. If we're not coming after a bear market, then that would also be another reason for a concern. So let's dig into some of the highly rated funds that have recently reopened, starting with T. Rowe Price Midcap Value. That's a gold-rated fund. Um, let's talk about why you and the team think so highly of it. Uh, yeah, it's run by David Wallach, who uh, won Manager of the Year a few years ago. Uh, he's just got a long track record of being this very consistent, disciplined value investor, uh, just uh, really kind of stuck to that mid-value space. But uh, very good fundamental work behind that. We tend to think of T. Rowe a little more as a growth shop, but uh, Wallach's really carved out a niche for himself as a, a really good uh, value investor. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed that this fund would reopen, so it's it's great to see it uh, reopen be- because it's really one of the best mid-value funds out there. Another fund that you and the team like that has recently reopened is Fidelity Small Cap Discovery. This is a small blend fund. It's silver rated. It really got creamed recently, but you and the team like it quite a bit. Let's talk about what you think are its attractive attributes. That's right. If if you see the rating and you look at year-to-date performance, you'll wonder what we were smoking. But there, there is there are actually reasons. Uh, Derek Jansen runs his fund in a very good Buffett influenced value style that um, I, I think is really appealing. Uh, the problem it's had this year is that it's on the small value blend border, but it's in the blend category. And as I mentioned, small value has been the hardest hit performance wise. Uh, it's got some financials and energy and other uh, overweights relative to peers. So, in a lot of ways, in the wrong spot. But uh, he's a good manager with a good track record. Uh, we like this strategy, uh, though, and clearly out of favor at the moment. Okay. Artisan International Value is also on your list. This is a fund that is silver rated. It recently underwent a little bit of a transition on the manager team. Let's talk about that. That's right. Artisan International Value and Artisan Global Value uh, had long been run by the duo of Dan O'Keefe and David Samra, uh, former Oakmark uh, veterans. Uh, in, a, in a value strategy, uh, a, a year ago, they split, or maybe it was two years ago, I'm sorry, late late 2018, I think, uh, they split into two separate camps. Uh, some analysts went with Samra, some with O'Keefe. Now O'Keefe runs the global value with, with some analysts. Samra's running this one. Um, so, so you're right there. Those two have now split, uh, but we do still think highly of Samra and the analysts he's got with them. Uh, so it, it's still an appealing fund. Finally, I want to touch on a growth-oriented fund, uh, Wasatch Small Cap Growth. This one reopened. Let's talk about why you and the team like it. Yeah, uh, small growth is kind of Wasatch's uh, uh, sweet spot. They've just got a long history of really doing well in small growth. And J.B. Taylor uh, has a great record. Uh, Taylor's looking for uh, companies with the potential to double their stock price in in, a, in five years. But he also looks at things like uh, cash flow and uh, strong management. And those are things that keep it grounded from avoiding the most speculative fare. So uh, even though it can run pretty nicely in a growth rally, uh, it doesn't go all to pieces when growth's out of favor. Well, Russ, it's always great to get your insights. Thanks for sharing a look at some worthy recently reopened funds. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome.
Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Now, Christine Benz interviews Alex Bryan of Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Value investing has massively underperformed growth over the past decade. Joining me to discuss the perils and promise of this investment style, as well as to share a few value-leaning exchange-traded fund picks, is Alex Bryan. He's Morningstar's Director of Passive Strategies Research in North America. Alex, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Alex, let's start by talking about the basic thesis behind value investing and why people think that it should work over time. Yeah, so value investing is all about buying stocks that are trading at low valuations, low multiples of things like earnings, book value, and sales. It's based on the premise that stocks that are trading cheap should offer higher expected returns than, than stocks that are trading at higher valuations. Now, that could either be because stocks that are trading at low valuations might be mispriced, investors might be overly pessimistic about those firms' prospects, or investors might require higher expected returns to hold those companies as compensation for their higher perceived risk. Um, but in either case, there's this expectation that low valuations should be predictive of future returns. So let's talk about the sources of the underperformance over the past decade or even longer. Of course, it's a complicated question, but can you unpack some of the main variables that have been hindering value stocks performance? Yeah, so value stocks have, have gone through a really rough stretch. Um, depending on which index you look at, they, they've all pretty much been out of favor for the past 10 plus years. Um, and there's a few factors that are contributing to that. Number one, the valuation spread between value and growth stocks has increased considerably over the past decade. Value stocks are, by definition, going to trade at lower valuations than growth stocks, but that gap has only grown bigger over the past decade, and that's a big part of why value stocks have underperformed. The second piece is sector biases that are inherent in a lot of value strategies. So typically, value-oriented indexes tend to overweight sectors like energy and financial services. And those have been particularly challenged areas of the market over the past decade um, due to the decline in oil prices and the challenging interest rate environment that we've had. Uh, they also tend to be underweight, stronger performing sectors like technology and healthcare. So th those sector biases have played into that underperformance. And then thirdly, a lot of growth stocks have exceeded the market's expectations as they've uh, carved and deepened their economic modes over the past decade. So companies like Amazon and Netflix really, I think, have kind of blown a lot of investors away. Even though a lot of people had high hopes for those companies 10 years ago, they've more than delivered on, on those expectations. So I think it's a combination of different factors. But any way you look at it, value stocks have had a rough go of it. So is there any reason to believe that the future will be different than the past? I think so. Um, I mean, the valuation gap between value and growth stocks can't increase indefinitely. I mean, people have been saying that for a long time, but there, there comes a point when valuation, the valuation spread just can't grow any further. So I think that's something to keep in mind. You can't just look at the last 10 years and extrapolate that out indefinitely. Um, but I think more importantly, the fundamental case for value investing really hasn't changed. Um, while 
the valuations that we observed based on things like price to book and price to earnings may not necessarily be indicative of how a stock is trading relative to its intrinsic value, which we can't see. Low valuations are still predictive of future expected returns. The lower valuations are today, the higher expected returns tend to be. And that's partially because you get more for your money when you, you pay a lower valuation for a stock. Your dividend yields tend to be higher. You tend to get a, a higher buyback yield off of uh, companies that are trading at lower valuations. And those are, are the fundamental uh, areas of value creation. It's the cash flow that you're getting for the, the money that you're paying for those companies. So at the end of the, the day, the fundamental case for value investing really hasn't changed. Um, and I, I think it's important to keep in mind that valuation spreads between value, value and growth stocks, stocks really can't continue to, to widen out indefinitely. So I think while value stocks should offer higher expected returns than the market, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're always going to outperform. Just like we expect stocks to offer higher returns than bonds, there's decade-long stretches when stocks underperform bonds. The risk is real. This is not a free lunch. Uh, if you're not comfortable experiencing these potentially lengthy stretches of underperformance, you should probably just invest in a broadly diversified market cap-weighted index fund and not tilt into value stocks. But I think if you have the fortitude to stick with it, value investing will reward investors over the long term. So let's talk about some ETFs that you like for investors who maybe do want to play a resurgence potentially in value stocks. One uh, strategy that you like is iShares MSCI, MSCI Edge USA Value Factor ETF. Let's talk about why you think that strategy is attractive. Yes, yeah, so this fund, fund takes a sector-relative sector approach to stock selection. It's basically targeting stocks that are cheap relative to their sector peers. So it's looking at tech companies and comparing them against other tech companies, looking at banks and comparing them against other banks. And I think this sector-relative approach to stock selection makes a lot of sense when it comes to value investing because there are important differences in um, companies across different sectors where uh, you, you start to lose some information if you compare an energy stock against a tech stock, just because their balance sheets are very different, their business models are quite different. So I think looking within each sector for value helps improve comparability of valuations. It also helps mitigate unintended sector tilts that you get with a traditional value strategy. So with a fund like this, you're not going to get a big overweighting in energy or a big overweighting in financial services. It's going to give you sector um, sector um, winnings that look a lot like the market. And I think that's really important because most of the value from the value investing has come from stock selection, not necessarily the sector biases that come along with value investing. And then for investors who are maybe even more contrarian and want to pay, play a, a deeply unloved part of the market, Vanguard small cap value ETF is, is one that you like. Why do you like that one? Yeah, so historically, value investing has tended to work the best among the smallest stocks. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One, small cap stocks uh, are less widely followed than large cap companies. So there might be a greater potential for mispricing and more stocks in that area of the market could become undervalued. Um, those stocks are also riskier, so they might offer some compensation for that risk. 
Um, but if you're comfortable with those risks, I think this is a really good way to get exposure to this area of the market. Uh, this Vanguard fund basically targets stocks that represent the cheaper half of the U.S. small cap market and weight them based on market capitalization. So what you end up getting is a very well-diversified portfolio that really gives you targeted exposure to this area of the market that has been beaten up quite a bit. And I think if value um, has, a, has a comeback, this particular fund will be one of the better performers out there. Uh, this is also one of the cheapest small value funds available. And, and as we all know, low fees are one of the best predictors of future performance. Alex, it's always great to get your insights. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Susan Jabinski from Morningstar Inc. interviews Madeline Hume of Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar.com. The COVID-19 crisis has thrown a wrench into college planning. Some students have changed their plans for fall, and many families have undergone a significant hit to their savings. Here with me today to discuss some key questions 529 college savings plan investors may have is Madeline Hume. Madeline is the lead author on Morningstar's latest 529 College Savings Plan Landscape Report. Madeline, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Susan. Now, how far? let's start with how far back has the market crisis set 529 plan investors? Yeah, it's a good question. The answer to this question depends mostly on the age of the beneficiary. Uh, we find that most investors uh, choose to put their money into an age-based option, which means that uh, it, the asset allocation shifts from a stock-heavy portfolio early in the beneficiary's life to a more conservative bond-heavy portfolio as they approach uh, the crucial years prior to college enrollment. So the average return of these portfolios um, each age-based category over the past nine years through March 2020 to see how far the crash has set them back and estimate the number of years before an investor gets back to even. Uh, investors whose beneficiaries are at or nearing 18 are running out of time. Um, on average, 18-year-olds need a 3.5% return to make them whole and not really much time left to achieve that. We're in May now and they start enrolling in August and September. But near, uh, near college investors have reason to take on average, markets have delivered returns in excess of 3.5% over the past nine years. So it's not a completely unrealistic goal to achieve in less than a year. While portfolios further out from college lost more than that amount, up to 19%, they have a good shot of recouping losses with the time that they have left. However, further shutdowns, additional market losses could set those back. So, Madeline, should investors continue to be um, contributing to a 529 college savings plan if the beneficiary has decided to delay college? If they're able, generally, yes. Our research finds that any year that investors do not contribute to their 529 account, they reduce the capacity for their savings to capture and compound investment returns. Since most savers uh, in a 529 plan don't open an account until their beneficiary is around seven years old, Contributing for an extra year or two actually gets that investor closer to the 18-year time horizon that most age-based portfolios were designed for. So to put it into context, for a $50,000 total savings balance, even one additional year can increase the ending account balance by up to $5,900. 
So in addition to the additional compounding that you get if you continue to invest, what are the other benefits to continuing to invest in the 529 plan? State income tax benefits uh, are granted based on contributions rather than uh, investment gains, which are what federal tax savings are based off of, and have a big impact for investors who are choosing between staying put and continuing to put money into that piggy bank. Uh, but income tax benefits also vary pretty significantly from state to state, which makes it tricky to provide unilateral advice. Uh, so we researched whether it was possible to cover the average fee of a plan's age-based portfolios with the available state-specific tax benefits. And our research finds that as long as you continue contributing, more than half of states' tax benefits cover direct sold plans expenses for more than a decade, during which time you're basically receiving free investment management. So there's no reason really not to stay invested. And then lastly, Madeline, what if um, the beneficiary decides not to attend college at all of the 529? What happens to the money that's in that plan? There are several ways uh, for an account holder to repurpose a savings set aside in a 529 plan. Uh, plans allow account holders to change the beneficiary from one person to another. So if the former student has younger siblings, it can just be a matter of filling out the form. Uh, if that's not an option, there's also uh, additional qualified withdrawals that aren't college tuition. Congress has increased the potential use for 529 plans in recent years. So 529 savings can be used to pay for apprenticeships and skilled trades. And they can also be used to pay off $10,000 of existing student loans, either for the intended beneficiary or for a sibling. So even if a child takes a non-traditional path towards education, those contributions do not have to be made in vain. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of the insights from Morningstar's latest 529 plan college savings landscape report. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar.com. Thanks for tuning in. Now, Christine Benz suggests strategies for retirees who rely on dividend stocks. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar.com. One side effect of the pandemic in the financial markets is that some companies have been forced to cut their dividends or eliminate them entirely. So where does that leave retirees who may be relying on dividend stocks for some of their income? Joining me today to discuss that topic is Christine Benz. Christine is our Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar. Christine, thank you for joining us today. Susan, it's my pleasure. Now, let's start with the news. So can you talk a little bit about why these dividend cuts and eliminations have been happening? Well, of course, we've seen this huge contraction in terms of GDP growth. So companies are feeling pressure on their profitability. They're feeling pressure to conserve cash and also to conserve employees. They want to try to keep as many employees on the rolls as possible. So those things have forced many companies to cut their dividends. By some estimates, we've seen more dividend cuts so far in 2020 than we had since 2001. So the dividend cuts have been widespread and they have affected companies in, in lots of different in industries. And have there been particular pockets of the market or industries where these cuts have been you know, more concentrated? Definitely. So the energy sector, as you might expect, has come under pressure. We've seen a lot of dividend cuts there. Of course, with the economy way down, with 
economic activity way down, so is fuel consumption. So naturally, those companies have been feeling pressure. They've been under pressure for some time due to declining energy prices. And then we've also seen a lot of dividend cuts in the consumer discretionary space. So that encompasses the travel and leisure companies, which have, of course, been quite hard hit. It also encompasses some of the retailers, which have historically paid dividends. Many of the big retailers are, are scaling back their dividends in the face of this crisis. So now these dividend cuts are, of course, a risk for retirees and they're also because that interferes with some income that they may be relying on. And they're also coming at a very difficult time. Well, they are because we've seen yields decline on high quality bonds as well. So it's the kind of bad convergence that we also saw during the great financial crisis where we saw in that case banks, which had historically been major sources of dividends for many retirees. We saw banks slash their dividends at the same time the Fed was working to keep interest rates low. And, and so that combination is one we've seen before and it tends to be particularly difficult for income-centric retirees. So then do, do you think dividend-paying stocks still play a role in retiree portfolios today? I think they absolutely do, and there are a couple of reasons why. One is if you look at current yields on high-quality bonds and certainly cash, they're very, very low today. So raw materials for decent returns from those securities just aren't there, given that current yields have historically been a pretty good predictor of what you might expect from those asset classes. And then the other reason is that um, in addition to the growth that investors can get from equities if they are long-term holders of equities, one thing we know by examining market history is that dividends have historically composed a huge share of the market's return over time. So you need stocks because you need growth and you also need dividend paying stocks because they've contributed such a big percentage of that growth over time. So um, how would you then suggest that uh, retirees be thinking about um, incorporating dividend-paying stocks in their portfolios today? Do it in a really balanced way. So they might uh, pair high dividend-yielding stocks with dividend growth companies, uh, which may have less impressive yields, but have better growth prospects. So you might pair, say, a high dividend yield ETF or mutual fund with one with a dividend growth focus to give yourself a little bit of balance there. And certainly also looking at the asset class exposures within your portfolio, looking for, again, some type of balance across high quality bonds as well as dividend paying stocks. And then finally, I think that retirees really would benefit from thinking expansively about cash flow as opposed to being very focused on current income. Of course, we all like getting income from our portfolios, but I like the idea of entering re retirement with the idea of being flexible about where you'll source your cash flows. So when yields are higher, maybe your yields will provide all of your cash flow needs and then some in markets like the current one, maybe cash 
is the asset class that you draw upon because it's not a great time necessarily to draw upon equities. And then in great equity market environments, selling appreciated equities may be your cash flow source. So my thought is to be flexible, to be a little bit eclectic when it comes to sourcing cash flow production in retirement. I think ultimately that will lend itself to a more stable portfolio construct. Well, we know this is a very um, important topic to retirees, so we really appreciate your time discussing this today with us, Christine. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar.com. Thank you for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long view with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. And lastly, our data reveals that stocks are less attractive today than they were in March. The stock market has staged a stunning comeback during the past several weeks, and not surprisingly, stocks aren't as attractively priced as they were in late March. On March 23rd, the average stock in our coverage universe traded at a 30% discount to fair value, meaning that stocks looked significantly undervalued. Over the next two months, the average price-to-fair value ratio in our coverage universe narrowed by 25 points. On May 22nd, the average stock we cover was trading at only a 5% discount to our fair value estimate, suggesting that stocks are now only slightly undervalued. The energy, consumer cyclical, and basic materials sectors experienced the largest point increase in fair values over the period. By late May, the healthcare and technology sectors both appeared to be fairly valued, with several other sectors approaching fair value. Despite its fair value increase since late March, energy remains the most undervalued sector today. Financial services and industrials also look undervalued. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.